Welcome. Good evening for those here. And good morning to those in Singapore. Saturday morning. So, as usual, or maybe unusual with me, because I noticed that I've been doing the meditation or the silence meditation in a different order. Shouldn't matter. So we'll first sit in quiet meditation, settling our body and mind. By, by trying to still the mind and bring it to the pace of natural breath. And then try to be fully present here. One way of helping to be present mentally would be to pay full, full attention to the breath and the sensations of the breath. If need be, even count the rounds of breath. Up to say five, ten, fifteen. And then let go of the counting and continue to stay with the breath. While breathing is happening in its own natural way. And in staying aware of the breath, try to do so alertly, attentively, ardently, which basically means to be deliberately present here, not by pushing too hard, but at the same time not being too careless, too relaxed, and try to attend to the object with some intentional effort. And try to do so with a sense of delight, enthusiasm, even maybe a sense of purpose, benefit. So, at the outset, to set a proper motivation, I mean, to a certain extent, the recitation should have helped in bringing our focus here and the purpose behind it and the possibilities ahead of us. What drives us in pursuing Dharma, particularly in the tradition of the Mahayana. So try to renew them, make them stronger, 
maybe at this point to help strengthen that and also make the purpose clearer. Think of sentient beings, or rather, to be practical, human beings, animals that we see on this earth. Think of them and their conditions. More particularly, the recent happenings of natural catastrophes, calamities, like earthquake and others in other parts of the world, particularly Ukraine and as well as Russia. Not just those on the ground, but those at the deciding table. Now things might have turned out totally unexpected, and how this is now dragging them all into more suffering, into more uncertainty, and things are going out of their control. So like this, there are sufferings that beings undergo, both those which are out of our control, in the form of natural calamities, as well as those that we intentionally create, irrespective of whether we are aware of what we are getting into, and how things turn out, totally different than what might have been expected. So, in the Buddhist parlance, such sufferings will come under the suffering pain, the most gross, superficial suffering. Underpinning them are more serious problems, more serious conditionings, that we as human beings and animals and as sentient beings all share in common in the form of afflictions, actions driven by them, how at every step of our life We fall for the afflictions and suffer the consequences. Many among us may not even recognize those are afflictions, those are trouble sources. And some even see them as something meritorious, something good, something cultivate, indulge in. Maybe because they are giving them temporary pleasures and that's all they know in terms of pleasures of happiness. 
even in the case of those who know reflections, recognize afflictions, and know them as the source of problem, and mean to really address them despite that. Not every time do they succeed. The hold of afflictions and its root in the form of ignorance, more particularly grasping at their existence. And it's related secondary inappropriate attentions, distorted perceptions, the hold of them on us is so strong that even our efforts seem to fall short of actually addressing them as well as we wanted. That means the source for future sufferings still lie in us. Of course, at least our efforts in identifying afflictions for afflictions, or what they do, and trying our best to stay our way away from them. Yes, do pay off. Still, the foundation of that is not even. That means the prospect of suffering. Continues in samsara. And in samsara, there is no future. Yet, efforts at least for many of the human beings, fall short of addressing the problem and see that as a problem, and spend all the time in pursuing things that will just stop meaning anything before we even die, that alone have any consequence, any impact, any positive impact in the future, in the time following that. If we have difficulty thinking of what may lie ahead, just think of how we begin in this life, how we are so different, how so entrenched the afflictions are. Whereas when it comes to positive things, most of us have to start from the start, as though we came like a Blinked, When it comes to afflictions, as we come of age, we should be surprised of how masterful we are in those 
ईश्वर के बाद समाय दिया और कुल लाया है कि वे दुनान एड्रेस्ट द प्रॉब्लम द सोर्स ऑफ एस एम्बॉडीड सेंशन बीइंग्स दिस बॉडी इन एडिशन टू आर बीइंग सेंशेंट under the rule of afflictions, add to the problem. All of our sufferings, problems, as sentient beings, would be traced to our mental states, our mental dispositions, our mental habits. And just look at oneself and others around us, be that among the leaders, among the businessmen, those who have seen writing the laws, enforcing them, executing them, interpreting them. See how we as whole humanity, how far we have succeeded, or where are we, where do we stand in really putting our finger at the right culprit, at the right source, the correct source of all the Thinking along these lines, supported by one's own experiences here and there when some problems happen, chain reactions happen, they could be traced back to afflictions. Feel more inspired, encouraged. to put more effort in spiritual practice, not just for its own sake, but to become an exemplary achiever in the right sense, the whole of the humanity. By gaining confidence in what we teach, what we show, what we share, Having learned it through one's own experience, let's look up to the Buddha as the old model and determine to spend the rest of our life in walking in his footsteps in achieving what he achieved, in being able to do what he is able to do, what he was able to do, still continues to benefit us.
may what we share, learn, hear, discuss in this session, contribute in whatever way possible to us. us on the track to becoming Buddha. For the sake of all sentient beings. Okay, so last time uh, we stopped at the last paragraph of page 280. We'll push through this today. Reflections are rooted in the ignorance that misapprehend reality. That part, to a certain extent, we can all relate to, particularly when it happens to be very gross affliction. We may call it ignorance or not, but something which misapprehends the reality, be that on any level, on gross level, in thinking what somebody did when they didn't do, or in thinking that they will keep doing it, they will last forever, etc., etc. Some men will be that apparent in having fueled affliction in that way, but if you look deep down, we could see seeds of them kind of supporting the affliction. So here, in Buddhism, just as with many of the topics, ignorance too is dealt in steps. So ignorance being recognized here in terms of misapprehending reality, that too, with regard to whether or not things, including oneself, are inherent in existence, existent or not, this is going to the subtlest of the ignorances. And then, before we reach there, in the scriptures, it, it kind of presents levels to gradually, to gradually zoom in to the actual culprit, the right, correct, fundamental, last, but before doing that, it recognizes the, the scriptures present by way of the schools of tenets, present grosser level of ignorance, which all of them do contribute to the afflictions, uh, but they fall all fall short of being the ultimate ignorance, in which 
in that, just merely getting rid of them, even uprooting them, which wouldn't be possible without uprooting, grasping they had in existence, but nonetheless, even hypothetically thinking that they have been uprooted, the problems, let alone problems, sufferings, but even afflictions would not have gone away. But nonetheless, they are presented as a stepping stone, as a way of kind of training us in refining our understanding of what lies at the root of the afflictions. And we call that ignorance, not in a naive sense of not knowing and not knowing, right? Which could also be kind of ignorance, but that's not so serious than this kind of ignorance, which is being pointed here as being in the form of a misapprehension. I like to call it misknowledge, right? because some really take it as a knowledge, as, as something that they can, that they can defend and, and they advocate this. Whereas what it has happened, what it has become is a complete diametrical, yeah, diamet, diamet, diametrically opposite. Okay. <laughs> It sounded a little different than what I knew. <laughs> yeah. Rather to something which is diametrically opposite to the actual mode of existence. So it's very interesting. The ignorance revolves around the mode of existence of things, which means about reality. And it is this this ignorance is so so screwed, so misconstrued in that uh, it not only gets the reality wrong, but gets it totally diametrically opposite. So it makes sense for it to be a source of problem, at least, because it is against the reality, not just against, but completely opposite of the reality. That means following it, everything that comes after it, comes from it, and then if they drive us into our actions and whatnot, with every step we will be going further and further and further away from the reality. That means quoting problems. Nobody wins against reality. <laughs> if, if one knows what the reality is and if one intentionally tries to go against it, that means one is, we have a saying in Tibetan, which means, I mean, of course, quoting problem. It's almost like saying, paying for problems to be, to be, paying for problems to be had. It's like, please, please give me problem. I'm short of problem and give me more problem, right? So that's what it is. So here, and, and you'll be surprised, or maybe not, you already know about this. In Lamrim, it comes very clearly. In the section on the, uh, what do you call, small scope and middling scope practice, practice. their ignorance identified is in accordance with at least what the texts written by Asanga 
and others identify. I say tax reason by Asanga, allowing that maybe Asanga himself held some other view. See, in Buddhist we have such cases, authors writing, but writing with a purpose, keeping a space between what they write, what they really, really hold, all driven by compassion, love, not that, oh, this will sound best, I might get Nobel Prize. <laughs> Nobel Prize. Even Nobel Prize, you have to leave behind. <laughs> okay. So you will, you will notice that so ignorance, there's a shift that gradually comes in the recognition of the, in the identification of the ignorance, eventually to this grasping at inherent existence as the ignorance, as the source of all problems of afflictions in the Pasangika but before that. Less subtle, more gross levels of misunderstandings are are constituting the ignorance. Anyway, afflictions are rooted in the ignorance that misapprehends reality. That's a general statement. Now, when venerable zooms in to recognizes even. Oh, clearly, ignorance grabs phenomena as inherent existence, then this is the ignorance in the Prasangika Mahatmika system. Whereas reasoning proves that in reality, phenomena are empty of inherent existence. Yeah. What does what do we mean by inherent existence? How do things lack inherent existence? Is some big topic of its own. It needs to be really pursued seriously. And those of us who have taken bodhisattva vow and in further tantric vow, the vows themselves contain. Uh, precepts about visiting the understanding of emptiness on a daily basis. Yeah, sometimes we get this idea that inherent existence is equal, equivalent to independent existence. And since we know things are dependent, that means we know they are not independent. Oh, I got it. Inherent <laughs> things are not inherent existence because they are not independently existent. Because they are dependent. Because they are dependent on causes, parts, and we leave out Next one. <laughs> what about dependence on designation? That part? 
not needed because once, even with the first two, I understand dependent, which means they are not independent, which means they are not independent existent. Yeah, I got it. <laughs> yeah. Whereas this is talked about as being very difficult, particularly understanding it correct, correctly, correctly in the sense that while it is understood fully, there's no damage done on the conventional reality. Conventional reality even gets more boost. <laughs> yes, you are conventionally real because you are in identity, not existing. That's how it should be. And whereas this lack of inherent existence, when pursued to its right extent, is supposed to rule out even the slightest tinge of objectivity, which means not not existing from their side. They do exist, they don't exist from their side. Now, what other option is left than for them to exist from this side? Yet at the same time, they play their regulated role of cause and effect in a very infallible way. It's not a hodgepodge, anything goes, or kind of a cheap relativism, everything goes, but rather you need to have this for have to have this, you need to have this for this. This needs to precede this. There's this this invaluability, incontrovertibility. Oh, about the causation, and that is supposed to be even further affirmed with understanding of the correct emptiness. So that's why you may have seen in Laban Chimu, I think in the Lakhtong chapter, maybe towards the end, maybe either at, at the end of the Lakhtong, the special treatment of the wisdom, or at the regular, at the regular training, treatment of the wisdom. Somewhere there, there is a stanza in a long, what do you call, uh, interval. Long interval where Tsongkhapa takes time in writing in verses. I have to really prepare for saying words. verses. Yeah. Where he says that I know he calls us, those who are pursuing emptiness, friends, friends in the Madhemika. <laughs> Friends pursuing Mademika. I know, I understand. Some In your mind, when you uphold things being empty of inherent existence, you have difficulty 
you have difficulty affirming, you have difficulty you have difficulty defending causality. But that will, I can relate to that, that will feel like that, but feel assured. Stick to your position. Don't give in to uh, easy way out. What would be an easy way out? Pardon? Nothing exists. That would be the easiest way. Or nothing could be said about it. It cannot be known. Don't you hear it is said in the FFO? Don't need to speak about it. Or you could hold the position that I have no position, so I do not incur any fallacies. It's you who say this is this and this is this, this is whereas I don't say this is this. I don't dare to say book, this is book. Because the moment I say this, I landed I land on something non-book. So I have no position of it's being a book. So I incur no fallacies. And if this is not book, then somebody is not the producer of the book, so I don't have to worry about it. <laughs> anyway. So he says, I can relate with you. This would feel like this, but don't give it easily to saying, I have no position. I have no tenets. That I am skeptical to the, to the furthest point. I uphold skepticism to the furthest point. So there is no position. Rather hold on to that, stay with it for a while, even if inconvenient, feeling annoying that this is the right track to Mathemika. And, and then the following verse, the following verses points to where else you one might want to run into to feel comfortable. So it's it's definitely not looking for things here and there and here and there and say I cannot find it. That's that's an indication. That's an, that's the indication of how things lack in our existence. But that is not that is not it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Since ignorance does not rest on a valid foundation, it can be overcome by the wisdom realizing emptiness. So, as I said as I shared the last time, the initial stages of spiritual practice until we first, until we get to the first gate, and then even after that, through the second, the second gate, things will be not easy. We almost, it will almost feel like taking one step, I had 
fünf Steps, drei Steps, ten Steps. Oh, du hast Handelsschiff weg. It would feel like that. And then that's, that's because, because the hurdles on the way in the form of the afflictions have been so habituated within us. We're talking of long span of time. As I like to joke, the eternity going in the past, we have been so sh blindly following the directions of self-centeredness and self-grasping to such an extent that these afflictions have really gained stronghold within us and they are not going to give, give in and give up easily. That's the reason why all our efforts, even if be on the right track, fall short of that strength to really make them, make them unsettled. But then one has to push on. And that's the reason why, yeah, that's the reason why these seven Buddhas, among so many Buddhas, why some seven are singled out. I have come across accounts saying that those are role models before us to follow because they persisted despite the hardships and, and they didn't give up. I think in one of the Lojong texts, they are given as an example of how efforts are required and how efforts will pay off. Because when we are dealing with ignorance, we're not just merely done with exposing it. But we have to kind of move it and root it out. And that's difficult because it has taken root so deep down because of our habituation for so long, almost without even the slightest inkling that there could be some other way of looking at things. And that's how we kept on going for so long. And to a certain extent, it's apparent. It, it's apparent if we look inside when we sometimes find grasping at inherent existence or grasping at something solid, something objectively out there, we haven't learned, except with few exceptions, we haven't learned them in any school, right? And we haven't gone through any training in kind of th thinking that way, but this is so much part of ourselves. And that in such a, in such a, degree, I mean, to such a degree of depth and embodiment. And then likewise, the afflictions. I mean, when we talk of positive qualities like love and compassion, whatever amount of love and compassion we are capable of generating, say, naturally or over time without being taught or whatnot, 
is so much mixed with attachment. And it's so clear because our compassion just goes only so far, only so far, right? Whereas when it comes to anger, jealousy, greed, we do not know any race, any <laughs> any culture, any religion, whoever it happens to be that we think is problem creator, we, uh, it's just so easy to extend it. It's not like, oh, oh, it will not go there, right? It doesn't know any race, culture, whatever, gender, anything. So long as we feel justified, we can so easily. And sometimes we don't have to even wait for feeling justified, it just pops up. And that's indication of how, how habituated we are. And then on the other hand, how habituated in that direction is clear from how difficult it is to understand, to even buy into the idea that there is no inherent existence. Even when we buy into it, we accept it. How difficult it is to really wrap our head around it. Even the text, like Tsongkhapa's, very clearly explained it. We can just follow the words and lit the, the words, and then we can see how he is consistent all throughout. I mean, it must mean this. We get some idea, but in terms of ingraining it, even intellectually understanding it squarely is so difficult. Because once we hold on to this, it seems to have a problem with this. Once we hold on to this, it seems to have a problem with this. It, it seems not to fit in. And then when, say, we have understood it, how difficult it is to kind of bring it down to our heart and try to kind of train our heart in really seeing it in that way and eventually in a natural way. That's so difficult. And these are all indications of how we have been so much habituated in the opposite side. So it's not merely exposing it, proving it wrong, but kind of getting the the hold of the grasping within us away. Since ignorance does not rest on a valid foundation, so that's something, here it is, Here the statement is premised on the assumption that we understand ignorance to be not resting on a valid foundation, but that itself is very difficult in order to put in efforts. Since ignorance does not rest on a valid foundation, it can be removed, overcome by the wisdom, realizing emptiness. In our daily life also, we can make, we can, we can make some comparisons, how totally mistaking something and believing in it blinds us to other realities.
And then when we stick to that belief, wrong belief, how it's difficult for us to learn the correct way. And in the meantime, so much of the damage has been already created, loss. In the scripture, it gives the example of a father who thought or believed that his own son was the one who was killed, whom the corpse he saw. And he believed in it so much so when the child, when the son returned back and knocked at the door, father said, no. Right? There is a story there in the sutra. This is how wrong we can be so blinding. And then more so when we when we give credence to it for so long and give it the, give it the safe heaven within our heart. <laughs> cuddle it and then kind of, kind of really protect it, then it's even more difficult to make inroads in it. When ignorance is severed from its root, the afflictions that depend on it are also eradicated and can never return. Excellent qualities such as, a com such as compassion cannot be undermined by wisdom because they rest on a valid foundation. I would rather say they can rest on a valid foundation, but as ordinary beings, just about anything we generate, be that compassion, love, com whatever, tolerance, etc., or belief, faith, confidence, those should all be grounded on inherent existence. So in that sense, such kind of a Compassion can be affected when we understand in the lack of inherent existence. Whereas compassion doesn't need that. It can be not only built on the basis of true understanding of the mode of existence of things, but even get more boost from it by seeing the suffering even more clearly. And because of that, the strength of the compassion can be even stronger and whatnot. So compassion doesn't need to rely on Grasping an inherent existence, likewise, grasping a, in grasping mistakenly at permanence, etc. But unless we deal with afflictions, more particularly the grasping, just about, and and on the other hand, kind of fuel it even more, or kind of support it, or buy into it, it's a story then just about anything we cultivate will be positive, but nonetheless rooted in or kind of grounded or founded on grasping the inherent existence. Fortunately, grasping the inherent existence is, by, is not inherently negative. It is neutral by its nature. 
it's quite strange. It is neutral by its nature. It is not positive, not negative. It cannot be positive. I don't know if we could say it can be negative. It can become negative. I don't know. Or oh, it could be color negative. It could be color positive. If we want to say there can be compassion grounded on grasping and in existence, then it could come in all three colors, but by itself, it is neutral. <laughs> and that's the reason why compassion, even compassion, even bodhicitta, when it is grounded on, or rooted on, founded on, the grasping and inherent existence, it, the bodhicitta may help indirect whatever we do towards us prepare whatever we do towards enlightenment, but in terms of actually uh, actually making it happen, it will not so long as it is founded on the grasping rather it would be constrained it's if its actual effects would be constrained within these within the boundaries of samsara. Although in the meantime it could prepare virtues that could that could be aimed at enlightenment, but in terms of actually making the move, I was saying right, it's almost like getting your ducks in in a row, <laughs> but making them move. <laughs> oh, speaking of ducks, I have seen so many of them. <laughs> In Atlanta, oh, when they move, it's so beautiful. With with the with the with the parents one at the one at the two ends, it's so interesting. And it's just following them, right? Yeah. So it's it's like getting the dogs in line, and this, and then and just they are just waiting for the order to move, and the order never comes <laughs> unless until we generate push and generate and come closer to understanding of emptiness. Okay, when ignorance is severed from its root, the afflictions that depend on it. So in the case of the ignorance equated with grasping the inherent existence, that's what all afflictions depend on. When it comes to wrong perceptions or wrong distorted perceptions in the form of lesser distortions, like gross concept of selfhood, gross concept of wrong selfhood, wrong notion of self, etc. There can be afflictions which depend on them or do not depend on them. And and so that's the reason why there is this expression. In the Prasangi Madhimika philosophy, there's this expression. Afflictions, unique, I just put it, afflictions unique to the Prasangi Madhimikas. 
not in the sense that when you become Prasangika Madhimika, you have those afflictions. <laughs> but unique in that only the Prasangika Madhimika are able to identify them and see them, not just identify them, but see them as afflictions. Others just don't see them, they just overlook them. They recognize something else as afflictions, which are afflictions on those afflictions like anger, jealousy, greed, what not, but only those who are, which are founded on uh, grosser concepts of selfhood, be that the concept of self-sufficient personhood or, or even more grosser, uh, seeing some seeing self as being totally outside of the body, outside of the aggregates. So those, and also seeing permanent, impermanent things as permanent, those distortions can also give rise to afflictions. But they nonetheless have to necessarily deep down be, uh, what do you call, rooted in the grasping it in an existence. But then, in the case of the Prasangika Madhimikas, not only those afflictions identified by the others are rooted in the grasping in an existence, but there can be afflictions which are solely, only rooted in the grasping in an existence, not other grosser graspings. And That's why there is this expression, Our hearts, our hearts in accordance, uh, how do I say it? Our hearts in accordance with the Abhidhamma presentation are not our hearts in actuality from the Prasangika Madhigambha point of view. So we have this expression. Someone that we have all along been thinking as our hearts now have become our hearts with a qualification. Our hearts of the Abhidhamma. Which means you still have some way to go. <laughs> but that is, that, that's not to say that Theravad our hearts are not our hearts. That's not to say because there can be Theravads who are Sangi Matmikas. Yeah, right, and there can be, there can be, so-called Mahayanas, who are, whose, whose philosophy, whose how do you call, uh, level of wisdom falls short of prasangika So it's not to equate abhidhamma with the, uh, with the. Vehicles. Tenet schools and vehicles are different. So, the arhats in accordance with the Abhidhamma, or arhats mentioned in the Abhidhamma, because mentioned in the Abhidhamma would be in the sense that arhats, which qualify the arhat would as criteria, fulfill the criteria as explained there. And that would fall short of the standard that the the, 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 anyway, 
When ignorance is severed from its root, the afflictions that depend on it are also eradicated and can never return. Now this irreversibility, how do we make a case for that? Because that's, that's, that's pointing to the truth of cessation, right? That's pointing to the truth of cessation. Truth of cessation begins from the Arya path, and whatever it is, a cessation of it would that would have been totally rendered irreversible from that point on, and it kind of becomes increasingly so with other afflictions when we build attain more cessations. Excellent qualities such as compassion cannot be undermined by wisdom because they rest on a valid foundation. Yeah, so compassion, love, others, all of these qualities do not have to depend on on grasping at inherent existence. In a way, that's that's the reason why even when we we come very very often come across expressions like compassion that we generate has so much room to be refined with each additional wisdom understanding deeper and deeper reality it becomes more and more refined more and more refined in the in in one way in a sense of being grounded more firmly more and more firmly on reality and then uh, and then and then in other other sense also in that begins to see the root of the suffering that it is concerned about more and more clearly and, and able to really point pinpoint where the source is. And thus a compassion accompanied with the confidence. A, 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 a confidence, a compassion accompanied with a sense of a way out of how sentient beings, with a, with a clarity of how sentient beings suffer, what would be the way out? That's how compassion would become even more, more informed with the reality, and more grounded, more, what do you call, uh, inspired. So here, uh, Venerable quotes Dharmakirti in from the chapter first of Paramana Vartika. Uh, she has chosen to put the two stanzas, apparently stanzas two twenty to twenty one, in in prose form. I try to restore the verse form of it. And let's see how it is. I borrowed words that Venerable has used here, but put them in the verse form. And this, this, this is quite deep in the chapter first, towards the very end of it. And much of this theme about the possibility of liberation, about uh, how afflictions 
can be completely rendered uh, non-returnable, irreversible. Uh, the, this is mainly the theme in the second chapter, but in the first chapter too, uh, in this particular quote, it, it dwells on it. And it's, it, it's quite something. Although, uh, it wouldn't be that easy to buy into it. So the stanza, this is the stanza with, which deals with with uh, logically proving that there can be beings, or, or rather humans, who would have eliminated the pollute, pollute, pollutants, eliminated to the extent of having rendered them irreversible. And because of that, liberation eventually is possible. So this stanza, the 220, somewhat somewhat reads like this. All the occurrence of decrease and increase corresponds with their counterforces. Inculcating them, that is the, the counterforce upon the mind, in, inculcating them will turn it into the nature. That is why some beings can eliminate their contaminations. So what it is actually saying is, what it is actually saying is, if we look inside, we can see how, say in the case of love against hatred, when love increases, hatred decreases, right? When love decreases, hatred increases. Or when hatred is very strong, then love would have a hard time showing up. Right? So this correspondence, or rather in this correlation with the counterforce, say in, the, in this case, understanding of selflessness, emptiness, this occurrence of decrease and increase in a very regular, in a very consistent form, in regard in 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 regard to counterforces, is showing something. What does it show is that if we inculcate the counterforces upon the mind consistently, then it will decrease the afflictions, and not just that. In the meantime, it would itself befriend with the nature of the mind. Because it is rooted on reality, it, it would have more, what do you call it? It would have more, um, more possibility, more feasibility in, 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 in almost blending into the nature of the mind. That's the reason why some beings who are persistent on their path can eliminate their contaminations. Because of what this correlation we see between the counterforce on the one hand and their, and their corresponding afflictions. They kind of do not stay. They do not go like this together. Right? If one goes up, one goes down. When the counterforce goes 
when the counter force goes high, the afflictions go low. <laughs> Does it ring a bell? Okay, <laughs> the expression. <laughs> And then, this is in this is this is in response to uh, opposition and objection, saying, "Yes, some efforts may lead to decrease of afflictions, but it will come back, just as it does with all of us." So, so here is making the point about something that is not seen, but of which the indication is apparent within us of this of this. Correlation. Even it, this is even stronger than a correlation. Not just correlation. It is. It is stronger than that. It's not just happening by random, or with no reason. But there is a consistency in this, and 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 that is pointing to uh, the possibility of eliminating the pollutants because the pollutants show this tendency of decreasing when the when the counterforce is increasing, and that it, it it does so consistently. So if only we make efforts in inculcating the counterforce, building it upon the mind, then it will, because of it's rooted in reality, it, it will incline into the nature of the mind. And then they say, yeah, even if you gain some some level of elimination of the afflictions, they will come back. But the but Tamakriti is saying that no, here and yeah, and, and he is asking, by what reason would it come back? Would it come back because such a cessation has flaws? That that you see flaws in such cessation, or you see, or you neither see qualities, excellences, nor flaws in them, because of that, uh, these cessations will just revert back. To this, this stanza two twenty one, of which here it is: the nature of the mind is such that it is free of pollutants, and by nature, it. A mind that has realized emptiness as a real undistorted object. As such, it cannot be it cannot be counteracted by what is opposite to it, because even if one were to attempt to do so, the mind is naturally inclined towards its nature. So here the response is saying the agonies of samsara are absent. When such a cessation is attained, the agonies of samsara is absent, so flawless, so it would be flawless. Even if one were to search for flaws, you wouldn't find. So flaw, seeing flaw will not be a reason for it to revert back. And even if a mind deluded on reality were to counteract it, even if a mind deluded on reality were to counteract such a cessation, such a cessation would not be reversed, even in such a case, because the mind is now naturally inclined towards its new object. It has gained a well-founded reality, a well-founded object. Now it's not going to give up. Whereas all along, up until now, it has been holding on to a totally uh, wrong 
bounding uh, conditionless, right? Baseless object. But then the crucial thing for this is to prove the relationship between afflictions and the so-called ignorance, and how the counterforce that we are talking of is can be built in its strength in really uh, what do you call giving a death blow, that combating it forcefully to the extent of uprooting it. Okay, maybe with this we have finished the chapter, and maybe reflections we can leave for next time. Let's see. This is an interesting question here. Okay. I have several questions, but I didn't leave enough time. Next time I'll remember to leave more time. Last week, you emphasized how the afflictions are our true enemy. If I remember correctly, during one of the illumination of the intent reviews, whoa, way back, was it last year? You mentioned that Bodhisattvas do not fight the afflictions as forcefully, as strongly as fundamental vehicle practitioners. Can you explain this a bit more? I still struggle with conveying it properly in English. And this is true only with the bodhisattvas, the bodhisattvas of advanced path, bodhisattvas, the Arya bodhisattvas, who would have gained some uh, confidence over the afflictions. And it, it, it's almost like they would have totally shaped off the afflictions. Their horns, horns would have only been shaped off by them. Now they are just mere balls they can play with. <laughs> so if they need some nails to be put into the wall, they can use this, this to put it into it. So that means they have gained some control over the afflictions, so much so that now they do not have to be always after them. In a way, they could even wait for time for them to be used into something beneficial to others, by which the force against the afflictions would have already gained. So apparently they would be seen like, what do you call, uh, guarding the affliction or even, even, even uh, nurturing them, which they don't do at all. But uh, what they're doing is by way of utilizing them, they are using them against them. And this is true for Sutra, Sutra Bodhisattvas also, but not with every affliction. The one affliction that has been singled out uh, for such Bodhisattvas to be able to utilize for the benefit of human beings, benefit of sentient beings, and thereby gain their collection of merit and thus build the force stronger, more, against the afflictions themselves, is the attachment, particularly 
yeah, particularly that of lust. The they they can keep themselves uh, being uh, overwhelmed by them, yet at the same time utilize them into an intended purpose, mainly procreating beings, sons and daughters, could then uh, go out and serve the humanity. So they would have gained that kind of confidence. And this is, whereas it is very clearly spelled out that when it comes to ignorance, when it comes to wrong views, Sutra Bodhisattvas just cannot play with them, cannot get, what do you call, cannot get, uh, get something, something of them. They cannot, they cannot get any good of them. I cannot, cannot get any good out of them. And they have to just be after them and, and eliminate them. Whereas when it comes to attachment, uh, they can, uh, they, uh, are the Arya Bodhisattvas, even in the Sutra system, uh, have gained, uh, the confidence of, uh, not being overwhelmed by them, not being, yeah, not being overwhelmed by them, but rather the confidence in utilizing them in for the service of sentient beings. We should only increase their merit, and thus their force of merit, their, their collection of merit, and only work against afflictions. And this is particularly spoken of in the case of bodhisattvas who. Yeah, who take rebirth under the force of, again, Menlam, under the force of Menlam, and under the force of aspiration, under the force of aspiration, under the force of compassion. But there are others who can, and, and these bodies are not mental bodies. But then if they want to generate mental bodies, uh, have mental bodies, by which they could then go into, go at speed of light, or even faster than that, into after other universe, other multiverse, whatnot, then they take the mental body. For that, the the source is not, not compassion and the, of course, there will be compassion and there will be aspiration to serve others, but the main force uh, that goes into creating that mental, that kind of a body would be Arikpajakisa, the subtle latencies of afflictions uh, or ignorance. Not the ignorance itself, but it's non seed latencies, non seed imprints. Together with their sapamebele, together with an unpolluted action, which means an unpolluted, unafflicted, afflicted, free of, free from affliction, free of affliction, stain. In yet in the form of an aspiration to be born somewhere. 
those two combined would serve like the two main causes to generate to generate uh, to take on a mental body. But then, in the case of, as, as one advances in the path, when it comes to Vajrayana and the highest yoga Vajrayana, then they are capable of handling, uh, they are capable of turning the afflictions against the afflictions. Does it make sense? Turning the table against them? Turning the afflictions against afflictions, which means may, they, they are able to use more affliction, more variety of afflictions, and that too also in more variety of ways against afflictions themselves. So in Buddhism, one thing which is very clear, and I heard this His Holiness emphasize very clearly, in Buddhism, in Buddhism at all given levels of uh, vehicles, practice or not, afflictions are ultimately to be eliminated. Not a single affliction is exceptional. But when it comes to doing that, as one advances, it could be seen differently. Right? Like utilizing them in, utilizing them against them is, and, and thereby not earnestly getting after them, but in a way meeting them and utilizing them against them. That's not the case with the Shravaka and Prateki Buddha Arhats. They just have, whenever affliction arises. So the Tibetan, Tibetan term is Chetu Nyenne. Chetu Nyenne Mipong. And that's the, what I think comes through intentionally, deliberately, but still it doesn't seem to convey completely in English. That would be from Mahayana Sutras? But, so these, these, come f these ideas come from Mahayana Sutras? Yes. Not the tantric stuff you're talking about, but when you're talking about on the sutra level. Yeah, yeah. So this uh, use of um, attachment. Least, yeah, yeah. But, okay. Yes. It it clearly spells out in the, in regard to the qualities of lamshe. In the, we speak of lamshe, shishe, lamshe, and namche, chensum. We speak of three. In English, it's falls short when I say knowledge. Three wisdoms. Three wisdoms. Wisdoms of the Shravakas and the Pradhika Buddhas, they are called Shishe. And then those of the Bodhisattvas on the Sutra level are called Lamche. And, and the, that of the Buddhas are called Namchen. And they are all Arya paths. So in the case of the Lamche, that of the Bodhisattvas, it speaks of five qualities, out of which one of it is this one. Being in the nature of utilizing afflictions for the service of others. And it singles out this only that has been, not, not the others. Yeah, we're already out of time. So, 
There's no point to push, push through this. But I would like to comment on the, the question that we had last time, which was about nominal. I don't know if that's what the person, that's what may be um, troubling the person in calling it merely nominal or not, but I, I suspected it. Because in English, when you say nominal, nominal head, which means name had only in name with no power, then that would that might equate to saying if everything is nominal, it might come to meaning that things are mere name, they are not capable of function. That's not the case. Things are capable of their own unique functionality, even more so by virtue of being just merely dependently arisen. And thus by virtue of being lacking inherent existence. So here, nominal is not short of functioning, functionality, uh, or, yeah, short of functionality, short of power. But here it's different. Here, nominal in the sense of in the sense of, yeah, mere designation. Okay, we will stop it here. And yes, uh, I would like to ask our Singaporean audience uh, to think more about the connection between the afflictions and the ignorance and how the ignorance is, is identified here. See whether that connection, you could make, you could support it, you could gain some evidence from your own experience. Do you find, first of all, see if you have grasping at selfhood with regard to oneself, with regard to others. If so, is that something that is connected with the afflictions that you generate? If so, to what extent? How would if the affliction react if that were to be taken away? So, so that's something to think about with this. With this for, food for thought, <laughs> I will leave it here. Let's now dedicate it.